Greetings. Subject of this talk is the uniqueness and the titles of Jesus. We're going to look at that in the background of both the Quran and the Bible. This is a series on the cutting edge between Islam and Christianity. And this is another subject where <clears throat> you have tremendous ammunition, if you want to use that expression, or material for witness to Muslims because the Quran supports the Bible in so many of its unique teachings about who Jesus was and particularly in some of the titles it gives to him. I'm going to start with his birth. Every Christian knows that Jesus had a unique birth. He was born of a virgin woman, his mother Mary. And that wasn't just something that happened without any anticipation. Rather, in Isaiah 7.14 it was predicted uh, that he would come into the world born of a, a virgin woman and he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Well, Luke records the birth of Jesus in these words, or the Annunciation, rather, to his mother Mary of his unique birth. Luke 1, 26 to 31. <clears throat> in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And she went on to say, How shall this be, since I have not had a husband? And the angel said, The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Power of the Most High will come upon you. Therefore, the child to be born of you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, the Quran confirms this in Surah 3, verse 45 to 47, in the following words. When the angel said, <clears throat> O Mary, Allah announces to you a word from himself, whose name is the Messiah, Jesus, Son of Mary, and to be honored in this world and the hereafter and of those who draw near. He will speak to the people in his infancy and in maturity and will be one of the righteous. She replied, How shall I bear a son when no one has touched me? He replied, Even so, Allah creates what he wills. When he decrees a matter, he only says to it, Be, and it comes to be. And in slightly different terminology, the same record of the virgin birth of Jesus and the Annunciation to Mary is recorded in Surah 19, verses 16 to 22. question you immediately ask is, why was Jesus born uniquely of a woman in a way no one had ever been bef born before or since? Well, it's a special conception. It's not just a unique birth. Even the, an angel from heaven came and announced it to her and said to her, the child will be, to be born of you will be called Holy, the Son of God. In other words, you're going to have a very unique, very special conception and birth because there's something very unique and very exceptional about your son. In the Quran, Jesus is called E Sabna Mariama, Jesus, son of Mary. No other woman is named in the book. Quite clear that the Quran confirms the virgin birth of Jesus. Mary alone, Mariam, has Surah 19 named after her, but no other man in the Quran, male, is given the name of his mother, 
as a descendant. You might speak even in Islam as we do of somebody, son of so-and-so, common Jewish expression for genealogy, uh, Solomon the son of David and so on, David the son of Jesse. And you find all over Islam, everybody is called, um, uh, for example, Yaqub ibn Ishaq, Ishaq ibn Ibrahim and so on, but never named after the mother, Isa ibn Maryam. Unique conception, unique birth, unique child. Then the sinlessness of Jesus. Now uniquely again, the Bible states that Jesus is the only man who's ever lived and ever will live, will live on this planet between now and the day he comes back without sin. All other human beings, the Bible says plainly, are sinners. In Romans 3 verse 9 and 23, For all have sinned and short, fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. There's no one who, who does good. Their throat, uh, their, their, their feet are swift to shed blood and so on it goes. Paul gives an absolute rundown of the horror of all human sinfulness and finishes by saying there's no one who does good, not even one. There's no fear of God before their eyes. But the Bible also clearly states that Jesus is without sin. The one exception. 1 Peter 2 verse 22. He committed no sin. No guile was found on his lips. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Uh, 1 John 3 verse 5 He appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Now it's interesting that the Quran confirms this and once again says this of no one else. Let me read these words to you. Surah 19, verse 19. I am only a messenger of your Lord to announce to you a faultless son. The words in Arabic are khulaman zakiyan, meaning a little boy, most pure. That's a literal interpretation of those two words. But the Quran freely acknowledges the sins of other prophets. Adam, who ate the fruit of the forbidden, forbidden sorry, the forbidden fruit of the tree. Surah 7, verse 23. Abraham, Surah 26.82, Moses, Surah 28.16, Jonah, Surah 37.142, elsewhere of David even, and even of Muhammad himself, Surah 47.19, ask forgiveness of your sins, strongest possible word used for both expressions, forgiveness and sin, li dhambika, dhamb is the word used here, one of the strongest Arabic words, meaning serious wrongdoing, again in Surah 48, 2 repeated. So Jesus stands alone as the only one without sin. And then we find that the ascension of Jesus to heaven is stated in the Bible, that he didn't just simply remain buried in a tomb, but he was actually raised back to life, and then he went up to heaven. Stood in front of his disciples in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 9 to 11, and we read these words. And when he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Colossians 3 verse 1 says that he is seated at the right hand of God. 
Ephesians 1.21 says he's far above all rule and authority. Uh, again, the Quran itself has only one text that refers possibly to the ascension of Jesus, but it's clear enough. Surah 4.158, Barofa'ah, but Allah raptured him. That's what the word means, literally. Allah took him up to himself. He was taken and he ascended to heaven. So we see the uniqueness of Jesus being perpetuated again. Very unusual to find that Jesus had a very unusual birth and that he had went up to heaven at the end of his life. His life began in very unique circumstances and it ended in equally unique circumstances. No one else born of a virgin woman. And as Jesus said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And the same one who descended went back to heaven in a unique way. And then the fourth point here is the return of Jesus to earth. Now, we call that the second coming. It's the first coming. He came down from heaven and he will come again. Second coming. And I'll just read to you a couple of verses from the Bible that just brings out the uniqueness of Jesus in this respect. Matthew 24 verse 30. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And then again in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangels call and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then again Revelation 1.7 Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, everyone who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, verse 32, that they will see the Son of Man coming. All the nations of the earth will be gathered before him on the throne on that day. Now, once again, although the Bible goes into explicit detail on this, the Quran has very little to say about what will happen. And there's one verse in the Quran, which so often, and like so many other Quranic verses, it's just a little bit shaky, it's a little bit elusive, it's vague, it doesn't make quite clear what it's saying. But I'll quote it to you anyway. It is Surah 43, verse 61. He will be a sign for the hour. Doesn't tell you how, no explanation. Um, but you can translate it, he will be knowledge of the hour. And some translations do. Nothing more than that, which makes it even more confusing. Because the word used here is ilm, which normally means knowledge in Islam. But all over the Hadith records of Islam, <coughs> you find that the second coming, as we call it, the return of Jesus, is clearly stated. He will come back to the earth, according to Sahih Muslim, uh, one verse, uh, volume 1, page 93. He will institute a reign of peace when he comes to the earth. Ibn Sa'd and his Sirah, uh, 1 verse 47. He will return as a ruler and he will then die. Uh, Muslims have specific beliefs about the return of Jesus. They vary a bit. But then when he comes down, he's going to land, some say on the Kaaba, some say on the Dome of the Rock. But basically, <coughs> common belief is that he'll land on the minaret of the mosque in Damascus, the big one, and <coughs> be brought down. And then he will uh, spend 40 years leading the people of the world to Islam. Uh, story goes that he will break every cross on the earth. He'll kill all the pigs on the earth. All sorts of one strange and weird and wonderful things that he's going to do. And then he will die and he'll be buried next to Muhammad 
in the Masjid al-Nabi in Medina. Uh, they already will tell you, every Muslim tells me, we already have a tomb for Jesus. We're going to bury him in Medina. And you know what always amazes me just in passing, just uh, perhaps just for a little bit of humor here, is that Jesus is the only person on earth that I know that has three tombs. No one, he's got three. <clears throat> I went to Jerusalem many years ago. I went to see a tomb of Jesus. It's in the little garden uh, just uh, near Cal Calvary where Jesus was crucified. And it has a tomb hewn out of a rock. And this is a sacred place in Jerusalem. And Protestant Christians generally believe that this may well be the place where Jesus is buried. But basically it's introduced to you as the tomb of Jesus. And then if you are a Catholic, you might go into the, uh, the church in Jerusalem itself, the Holy Sepulchre, and they take you down the bottom to a little cave, and they say, this is where Jesus was buried. And they've got a whole beautiful church built above it, trinkets and lanterns and everything else, even though the New Testament clearly says that he was buried in a garden in a tomb hewn out of the rock. first one is very much, even if it's not the tomb of Jesus, it's certainly very much what he was buried in. But there you've got two tombs for Jesus in Jerusalem already. And then you go to Medina and you go on Hajj. And you find three tombs, the tomb of uh, Muhammad himself in his own mosque and then Abu Bakr and Umar alongside him. And then there's a little peephole that you can look through and they show you this is the third, fourth tomb. This is the tomb of Isa, Ibn Maryam. And we're going to bury him here when he comes back. And I always say to Muslims, well, this is a very strange thing. The only man on earth who's got three tombs. And the strange thing is, he doesn't fill one of them. And I've, as a friend of mine once just looked at a Muslim casually and he said, you're going to have a hard time getting him in there. <laughs> but the point made is the same, that Jesus right now is not buried in any tomb. He's up in heaven and one day he will come back to this world. Whether it is as Muslims believe that he will just come back as a follower of Muhammad as he asked to be, to lead the world to Islam or whether he will come back as Christians believe, every eye will see him, the heavens will be opened, the sun won't give its light, the powers of heaven will be shaken. The principle is the same. It's a unique feature about Jesus that both religions confirm. He will return to earth. Haven't seen this before. Nobody else has ever gone away and come back at least 2,000 years later. The Muslims call this the Nuzul Isa, the dissension of Jesus. Well, Let's have a look at the implications of Jesus' uniqueness. He's quite unique, as we've seen. And in each case, the uniqueness of his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, uh, his sinlessness and everything else, all give indications and signs of a singular greatness. He was just unlike any other man who ever lived on the face of the earth. And every Muslim must acknowledge that. So let's have just briefly a look at these and just see what we can draw from them, each one of these unique features. The virgin birth, unique. But what is the reason? Well, Luke 1.42, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. That's the point I made earlier. You are going to be blessed because you are going to bring a very blessed son into the world. You are going to have a unique conception and birth because... You have a unique son, a very special son who's coming into the world. And it's the same, Surah 3.42. The angel said, O Mary, surely Allah has chosen you and purified you 
and preferred you above the women of the world. Of all the women of the world. And the Quran confirms that. The only woman mentioned by name in the Quran and on a number of occasions. Why is that? Because she uniquely mothered the greatest of men. She's the greatest of women according to the Quran, according to Christianity, because she mothered the greatest of men. And Jesus in his own lifetime just showed you what his own uniqueness was. In Luke 10 verse 18, he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Well, that's an amazing statement. Um, I remember the Jews saying to Jesus, uh, you're not even 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? And Jesus could have replied as he did here, seen Abraham? What, 18 or 2,000 years ago? I saw Satan, saw him fall like lightning from heaven. I was there when it happened. He was a witness to it. John 6 verse 38, Jesus came into the world from heaven. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. When they said to him, look, Moses performed a miracle like yours after he had fed 5,000 one day with just a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. They're very excited about Jesus and they took this miracle very seriously. They ran all over looking for him the next day. When they found him, he started to give them a few teachings they didn't like. So they started to argue with him. They said, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And what they were saying to him was really this. Look, great miracle you did yesterday. Well done. But Moses did the same miracle every day for 40 years. Not only that, you at least had something to work with. You had five fish and two loaves. Sorry, uh, five loaves and two fish. But uh, Moses had nothing to work with. He just called the bread down from heaven. Well, if you are the prophet who is to come into the world, or the Messiah, and that's what they were expecting. They weren't looking for new prophets. They were expecting the Messiah. They said, you must at least match that. So Jesus said, right, I'll do better than that. I myself am the living bread that came down from heaven. Your fathers ate the bread that came down, sure, at the time of Moses, <clears throat> but they all died and perished in the wilderness. <clears throat> this is the bread. If a man eats of it that comes down from heaven, you eat of it, you'll never die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. You eat of this bread, you'll live forever. And the bread I'll give for the life of this world is my flesh. Clearly teaching that he had been pre-existent in heaven. And that's why he came into the world. And that's why he went back there. And you should point that out to Muslims. And clearly stated in John 6, 62, to the disciples, do you take offense at what you've heard? Or what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to heaven? You know, if I suddenly rise up off the earth and I go back to heaven, what are you going to make of that? John 8, 23, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. How is he superior? Well, you see it in the answer of Gabriel to Mary in Luke 1, 32 and 35. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Adam was made from the dust and he was a man of dust. But Jesus Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit and he was the Son of God. Conceived by the Spirit of God because he is the Son of God. As is the man of dust, Paul says, so are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Jesus was born of a virgin woman because there was no other way he could come into the world. Every other human being is procreated, comes into being 
at that moment of conception. Jesus pre-existed. He couldn't have been born of a human father. That's why he was born uniquely of a virgin woman. To Muslims, the second point, his sinlessness. Why it was Jesus alone sinless? According to Sunan of Ibn Majah, volume 5, page 489, the prophet of Islam said, every son of Adam is a sinner. Best of sinners are those who repent. Similar passage, however, in this hadith, Sahih Muslim, volume 4, page 1261. Abu Huraira reported Allah's messenger saying, the Satan touches every son of Adam on the day when his mother gives him birth, with the exception of Mary and her son. There again you have it, right in the core of Islamic tradition. All human beings are sinners. Every one of them falls short of God's glory, except one, the son of Mary. The Muslim world has no answer to this, because their own texts, both Quran and Hadith, confirm the uniqueness of Jesus in this respect. His uniqueness is personal to himself alone. It's not the circumstances of his life that make him unique. It's the circumstances around him that testify to his uniqueness. It's the man himself. I've always said the mission of Jesus was Jesus himself. And the work of Jesus was to die. That's all. Simple as that. If you had to ask, why did Jesus come into the world? To come to perform miracles? If so, why isn't he performing miracles today? Did he come to bring new teachings? No, not at all. Did he come to guide the people, come to be this or that? No came for one reason, to bring himself into the world. And he came to die. There's nothing he did that served his purpose on earth. It's what was done to him that fulfilled his purpose. Very simple. Came into the world to bring myself. And the purpose of my coming is just to stand back and let things be done to me. That's the amazing thing. That's his uniqueness. Strange but true. I am the way, the truth and the life. Not I can show you the way. I can tell you the truth. I can lead you to life. No, I myself, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. I am the light of the world. Not, I can lead you to the light. That's what other prophets would teach. No, I am the light of the world. I am the door. Not, listen to my teaching and you'll find the door. No, I am the door. The mission of Jesus was Jesus himself. His virgin birth his sinlessness, his ascension, his second coming, all have implications. The religion of Jesus was Jesus himself. I've often put it like this in sermons I've given and said that many Christian people almost have this feeling that when you read the Old Testament, you come up against a very hot, almost sweaty, angry God, like a dog on a leash, just with snarling and just waiting to get at people. He seems to have a short fuse and a hot temper, and he just wants to judge everybody. And the picture is something like this, that there is this single frame of religion, everything that human beings must do in return, in weekly worship, once a week and so on. But the colors are very, very fiery, red, orange, yellow, black, sort of picture of a fire burning, symbol of you know, Mount Sinai when it, when it shook and when the Jews saw this fire burning and the law was given. And then what happened was that Jesus came and he changed the face of God. The picture remains the same. Sure, we go through the same motions. They went to synagogue on Saturday. We go to church on Sunday. They gave tithes. We give tithes. They prayed. We pray. And that nothing's really changed. I've heard many people say the new covenant is merely an extension of the old. And, you know, basically religion remains the same. 
that what Jesus came to do was to soften that picture. Now it's a much more gentle God, much more amenable, amiable God. Nice kind of Father Christmas sort of character. Now the picture is no longer oh fiery, red, black, and so on. Now it's just pastel green, and it's just pink, and it's uh, light blue, and, and you know, much more gentle God, much easier God to get on with. Absolute nonsense. Uh, don't believe anything like that. When the new covenant came, everything changed. He abolished the first, Hebrew says, simply to establish the second. He himself. Again, throughout Hebrews you find a contrast between the old and the new. On the one hand, a former commandment is put aside because of its weakness and uselessness, because the law makes nothing perfect. On the other, a much better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Former commandment was without an oath. This one is with an oath. In every way, the co covenants are contrasted. Jesus didn't come to repaint the picture. Jesus changed the picture completely. Put religion away and he put himself in its place. And that's what Christianity is. And that's why this uniqueness around him is so clear, both in the Quran and the Bible. And that's the important thing with Muslims, is to point to Muslims, we actually don't really follow a religion. We follow a person. I had friend of mine from England in South Africa a few years ago and uh, every now and again he would talk to me just casually and he'd say, oh, you know, a very religious man like you, you know, this and that. And I don't like being called religious, believe me. And then I had another time he'd say, you know, a devout person like yourself and this and that. And really I was just getting even more and more irritated with these definitions that were coming my way. Sort of pictured myself as some kind of friar with a sort of halo above my head, devout, religious, this, that and the other. And in the end, I just said to him, let me just tell you one thing. I said, I'm none of those things. I'm not religious. I'm not devout. I'm just someone else's disciple. That's all I am. And that's what Christianity is, is to be a disciple of Jesus, son of God who came into the world. We don't follow religion. Muslims follow religion. We follow a person. And that's why all this uniqueness focuses so much on Jesus. His unique birth, the unique end of his life. He came to put away sin by the offering of himself. He came to replace religion with himself. I often see it like this. I've never heard a sermon on this point in the scripture, but bear with me while I mention it to you. The moment when Jesus stood and the Roman soldiers were around him, the cross was lying on the ground and they flattened him. They took him and they pushed him down onto the ground. I can tell you in that moment, the whole edifice of Old Testament Judaism just came crashing down with him. Uh, it's very similar to the story of Samson, that when he perished, pulled the whole edifice and 3,000 people down with him. He, Paul says in Ephesians that all the law and the ordinances were nailed to the cross with him. And that's the point. As he went down, they were pulled down with him, nailed to the cross and finished. Jesus pulled human effort, human religion, formal monotheism, everything down with him. When he rose from the dead, just brought himself back. That's all. That's why Jesus said, he who believes in me has eternal life. Not in Christianity, not according to your good deeds or anything else. One thing, your faith in Jesus. So that is our message to Muslims. And it's all embodied in these unique features that you see in the life of Jesus Christ recorded in the Quran and in the Bible. Let's go to the ascension of Jesus. I've often said to Muslims, <clears throat> why... Do you think Jesus ascended to heaven? Oh, you see, they wanted to kill him, so God raised him up to himself. I said, no. I said, the Bible tells you 
that he went there because he came from there in the first place. We go back to the dust because he came from the dust. He went back to heaven because he came from there. That was the first coming of Jesus. Muslims often use the expression, the second coming of Jesus. I had a Muslim friend of mine who I knew well, I'd debated with him many times when we were on good terms, now deceased, Adam Peerby. But he produced a booklet at one time called Hadith Texts on the Second Coming of Jesus, and I loved that expression. And there was a book in India some years printed uh, many years ago called Nuzulu Isa, The Second Coming of Jesus. And I love that because I say to Muslims, what is the second coming? There must have been a first coming. And that's the whole point. John 3.13, no one has ever ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I came from the Father and I came into the world. Now again, at the ascension of Jesus, what did he do? Now often I've asked Muslims, what is Jesus doing in heaven today? If he was just a prophet of God and God just raptured him quickly just to protect him from the Jews, what did he do? Put him in a sort of safe place, in custody, you know, safe custody, up there in heaven, just for 2,000 years to look after him? I said, up there, there are glorious angels, the God of glory. And I said, this ordinary man of flesh and blood, and he's just sitting around, biding his time before he comes back to earth. Is he aging? When he comes back 2,000 years ago, is he going to look like 2,000 years old? Every Muslim will tell you, no, no, come back looking the same age as he was when he first went there. Another lecture I mentioned how Muslim I'd spoken to many years ago in South Africa said to me, I believe that when Jesus comes back, he'll come shining like a light. And I said, why? He said, well, you can't come from heaven looking like this. <laughs> Tremendous insight. Well, I'll tell you where he is. He sits on the throne of God in all glory. And all heaven bows down to him. At the name of Jesus, Paul said, every knee bows and every tongue gives praise to God. Ephesians 1.20 God accomplished his great might in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places. Hebrews 8.1 says the same. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne in the majesty of heaven. The Quran talks about the throne of God. Surah 10 verse 4, 7 54, 13 verse 2. And then again Stephen, when he was being stoned, and he saw a vision and the heavens opened, Acts 7 56, he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And Revelation 3.21 just rubs it again and again. And Jesus said, He who conquers, I'll give him this testimony. I will let him sit with me on my throne as I myself conquered and sat down on my Father's throne. Unique, not just unique on earth, unique in heaven as well. Sitting on the throne of God, the Son of the Eternal Father. That's what he's doing in heaven. And when he comes back to earth, as that Muslim said, not going to come looking like this, the heavens will be opened and you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. How will we recognize him? Believe me, no one will fail to recognize him. Lastly, second coming of Jesus here. As I said, he will return not a day older than he was the day he went. No one, according to the Bible, Matthew eleven twenty seven, can identify with God outside of Jesus. All things have been delivered to me by my Father and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He's coming back to this world not to point to a dead prophet and lead people to be his followers. He's coming to bring his own glory 
to bring eternal life in himself. That's why he's coming. John 5, 26 and 27. For as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted to the Son to have life in himself also and given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. His glory we will see on that day when he returns. His deity will be revealed and his redemptive work will be fulfilled and the life of God will come. Let us move on in closing to two titles of Jesus which you can use in witness as well because once again they bear witness to the uniqueness of Jesus. They appear in the Bible and they appear in the Quran. And the interesting thing is that the Quran doesn't apply these to anyone else. Let me read to you Surah 4, 171. O people of the scripture, do not exaggerate in your religion and do not say anything of Allah than the truth. Verily the Messiah, Jesus, son of Mary, is only a messenger of Allah and his word which he bestowed on Mary and a spirit from him. Get them? His word and spirit from him. So believe in Allah and his messengers and do not say three. Desist, it is better. Very Allah is only one. How glorified be he than that he should ever have a son. To him is everything in the heavens and on the earth and sufficient is Allah as an overseer. Oh, very dramatic statement telling you what to believe and what not to believe. But the interesting thing is that in this passage, I actually love this. It's my favorite text in the whole Quran because of its inherent contradictions. It gives a threefold denial of the divinity of Christ and embodies a threefold confirmation of it at the same time. It just doesn't come better than that. Three times it says he is not the son of God. Do not say three. It's not one of a trinity. Hmm. Glorify be he that he should ever have a son. He could not be the son of God. Yeah, believe in Allah and his messengers. Don't say anything of Allah than the truth. And so on it goes. But at the same time, you find these words. He is the Messiah, he is his word, and he is a spirit. Threefold denial of his divinity, only a messenger of Allah, not one of a trinity. God can't have a son. There you are. Nothing unique about him. And then promptly, but he is God's Messiah. He is a word from him, and he is a spirit from him. Well, let's have a look. I'm going to the Messiah of another lecture in the series on that subject, but I'll go into the other two words. First one, his word, kalima tuhu, God's own word. Surah 3, verse 45, this is repeated when the angel says to Bibi Maryam, to, to Mary, his mother, Allah gives you a kalima tu minhu, a word from him. And so also in the Bible, he gets the same title. Revelation 19.13 He is clad in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. In both books, the point being made is that he did not receive a word from God. He wasn't a prophet on earth to whom a book was sent out. Quran says the Injil was sent to him. Not at all. He is the Injil. He is the Gospel. He embodies it. He is the Word that comes from God. So three 47, Quran says, Allah said, kun kun. Be and he comes to be. So he was created by the word of God. And again here in Surah 3.59, the likeness, the mathal of Jesus, the parable of Jesus with Allah is as the likeness of Adam. Created him from dust and said, be and he came to be. The Muslims say that was the word that God just spoke, be and he came to be. That's not what the Quran says. The Quran is says he himself is the word from God. 
Kalimatum min hu, word from him. Kalimatu hu, his word. Jesus is God's word. Not a book which is God's word that came to him. And John 1 verses 1 to 2 explains this perfectly. In the beginning was the word, but not a scripture. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Just let me tell you what John is saying here. Let's elaborate a bit in what he goes on to say. Before God ever began to create anything, his word was already there with him. His kalima, Jesus. He was not part of the created order. But as Hebrews says right at the beginning of the book in the first verses, he upholds the universe by his word of power. That is Jesus. When the created order started, when God began to create, that's what John goes on to say, I'm putting in my words, the word was there, it was already part of the divine order. In the beginning was the word. The word was made, the world was made through him. The whole creation was made through his intervention. But how was Jesus' God's own word to mankind? Well, John says, goes on in verse 14 of chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. Every word of Jesus was God's word. Now, sometimes prophets spoke the word of God and other times they didn't. That's why you read in Islam of the Hadith al-Qudsi, the holy traditions. And these are Hadith where the word of God himself is recorded. But that's where the prophet tells you perhaps God's words. But then on the other hand, according to Islam, the prophet speaks for himself on many other occasions. And you can say that of all prophets. One moment they're inspired to speak prophetically the word of God, but the rest of the time they're just having chats and conversations with you. But not so with Jesus. Everything he said, always, every word was the word of God because he himself is that word. John 12, 49 to 50. I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, everything I say, is what the Father has bidden me. John 14, 10. The words I say to you, I don't speak of my own authority. The Father who dwells in me does his own works. He lives in me. He who hears my words, Jesus said, John 5, 24, and believes him who sent me will have eternal life. That's the whole point. And then two, as the word of God, he is God's final word to mankind. The last message, Colossians 1, 15 to 19. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. That's the point. This word is not just a message that came to him. He is God's word, God's communication to the whole universe. I love the way I told you that's my favorite verse in the Quran, Surah 4, 171. I love the way it kicks off and says, don't exaggerate in your religion. Don't speak of Allah, or for that matter, the Messiah, anything but the truth. Don't over overestimate him. It was only God's word. 
and there was only a spirit from him. And quite frankly, I can't see where we're exaggerating because when I see exactly what the scripture teaches about Jesus as God's word, you stand back and you say, well, it just doesn't come bigger than this. Let's have a look at the second one. The Rokun Minhu, spirit from him, Surah 4, 171. I want to quote you a text from another part of the Quran which has the same expression. If I'm right, it's the only place where the expression Ruhun Minhu appears again. There are those in whose hearts he has inscribed faith and strengthened them with the spirit from himself. So on the one place it says that Jesus is the Ruhun Minhu and here it says God sends a spirit, Ruhun Minhu, from himself into the hearts of true believers. Well, this is tantalizingly close to admitting the Christian trinity. Second and third persons, the word, the spirit, Jesus himself within himself, and now the spirit who strengthens true believers, spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Yusuf Ali, in his commentary on the Quran, has a very interesting comment to this verse. I want you to listen to it very carefully. It says, this spirit being spoken of here, the one that comes from God himself, is the divine spirit which we can no more define adequately than we can define in human language the nature and attributes of God himself. Whoa, doesn't come bigger than that. He's saying this is not some spirit God created, not even the highest of the archangels. This is God's own spirit, the divine spirit. And you can't define the spirit more easily than you can define God himself. He's a good commentator. He would have made a good Christian commentator because this is about as fine a definition of the Holy Spirit as I've ever seen in my life. But the very same expression is used in Surah 4, 171 for Jesus. He is the Ruch Minhu, same divine spirit that you can't define any more adequately than you can define God himself. I'd love to have met Yusuf Ali and asked him a few questions about this comment of his, if he had been alive in my lifetime. Although Surah 4, 171 denies the Trinity, as I said right here, unwittingly confirms it. Conclusion I want to give you is that the Quran witnesses time and again to the fullness of Jesus. His unique birth, his sinlessness, his ascension to heaven, his second coming, and now the titles Word of God and Spirit of God. All of those are applied to Jesus alone. You have to, even a Muslim must say, oh, there has to be something unique about him. And more to this man than meets the eye. He just doesn't fit Ordinary prophethood, if I can use that expression reverently. They're not explained in the Bible, but every one of these titles and every one of these unique features is explained in full comprehension in the Scriptures. Jesus reveals God, speaks His Word to us, unites us in His Spirit, and brings us to God.